This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, March 24th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a mayoral debate in Los Angeles last night. I think leadership of cities is, in a lot of ways, a lot more important than what a senator has to say about a book for a four-year-old. Angus Young and Curious George makes pancakes. I'm looking at you. The frontrunner in Los Angeles is Karen Bass, acknowledged state legislator, former leader of the Congressional Black Caucus. But the interesting wild card candidate who actually isn't that wild, which is something we'll get to, is a guy named Rick Caruso. Caruso's a rich guy, former Republican turned Democrat, so maybe Bloombergian. But he's a real estate developer, so Trumpian? I do love this detail in his bio. Olivia Jade Giannulli was on Rick Caruso's yacht, sorry, super yacht, Invictus, when the scandal broke about her mom, Lori Luffner, bribing and cheating her way into USC. But that's probably too much background for the point I want to make. Caruso, he's actually kind of a low-key guy. He's not Trump. He donated to Pete Buttigieg, maybe to establish his Democratic bona fides, even though the Los Angeles mayor's race is nonpartisan. And he has served on real civic boards there in Los Angeles, like uh, the police commission, where he had a big hand in actually selecting the commissioner. So it came as a surprise to read the front page LA Times story about the debate describing him this way. Rick Caruso cast Los Angeles as a dystopian Gotham City, one so beset by crime that every last resident is scared to walk outdoors. He cast his opponents as career politicians, saying the word, it's actually a phrase, but saying the word a bit like one might handle weak old fish. Well, on the crime front, it is clear that Los Angelinos' number one concern is crime. 41% of residents in LA view crime as a major worry. The city saw an increase of 12% in murders last year on a, the heels of a 20% murder increase the year before. Caruso never asserted that every last resident is scared to walk outdoors. There was a chance to say that, and he didn't. And as far as the career politician jibe, yeah, it's lazy. It's lazy to call your opponent's career politicians. That's what the non-politician always says. It's used, and he used it way too often. But I'm going to play for you the times he said it, and I want you to tell me if the tone or delivery is one of profound Piscean disgust or derision. Here, he mentioned the career politician thing in a discussion of housing. Here's what... The career politicians, how they manage that and what happens in L.A. City. Here he is talking about policing. Crime. We're 500 officers short, thanks to our career politicians. 
And here he is talking about leadership style. There's a great difference here. There's 63 years of career politicians on the stage, a lot of great ideas, none of which were implemented before they ran for office. That tone's more like he was talking about, I don't know, disappointing third quarter earnings. Not that it's some great point to go on and on about career politicians, but now I will give Karen Bass, obviously sensitive to anything fish-like, I will give her a chance to reply. You know, stop denigrating quote-unquote career politicians, people who have devoted their life to public service. Any of us that become mayor, you have to work with the city council. But back to the stinky fish talk. When the media describes an event, even in a story labeled analysis, they have an obligation to convey it in a way that would resonate as accurate to a fair-minded observer. The entire article, it's not a column, it's a three-bylined front page piece of analysis, was shot through with descriptions of exchanges and accounts of statements that were just off, that were clearly off. And I watched it. The event was on TV and on YouTube. Anyone could watch and see that Rick Caruso wasn't portraying Los Angeles any more or less apocalyptically than everyone else on the stage. Here I am, 3,000 miles away, and I feel like I have to do the additional research to see for myself if claims on the front page of the newspaper are accurate. And for me, they're not accurate enough. And it is getting a little bit exhausting to have to put in the research all the time to treat with vigilance so, so many facts that should just be taken as facts before we move on to the important issues which really are quite often characterized by gray areas. On the show today, is Candace Owens really a Russian stooge or a good old American stooge who happens to be carrying Putin's poison water? Don't sip it. Don't sip it, Candace. But first, Seven Days is an independent rom-com with a heart, but also an N95. When two young people go on a date that doesn't go well, that's fine. Their moms were really the ones most eager for them to pair up anyway. But then, well, a global pandemic hits. You know the one I'm talking about. And the two are locked down for seven days. The stars of the film, Karan Sony and Geraldine Viswanathan, join me next. I think you're not my wife. Um, okay. I mean this in a delicate way. There was some deception that's happened, and um, it just feels wrong now. Totally. Yeah. That makes sense. I think we'll find someone for ourselves that's better. I agree. Okay, I was a little bit worried that you were catching feelings. I think it's okay to move on. Mm-hmm. Seven days is, and I made a little bet with myself, how long could I get into talking about the movie Seven Days without saying the word delightful? It's not a sentence, is it? It's a delightful comedy that is a few things. It is essentially a bottle episode, almost only two sets. It is a two-hander, essentially. There are a couple of voices and people join by FaceTime. But why are they joining by FaceTime? It's also a pandemic COVID rom-com. And yes, it is a rom-com. It is definitely a com. The rom's an interesting aspect. 
to it. The director and co-writer, uh, Roshan Seti, is not with us. But you know who is? The two stars of the movie, Karan Soni and Geraldine Viswanathan. Thank you guys for joining me. Thank you. That was delightful. <laughs> it was delightful. delightful. <laughs> you knew the word. I mean, you always wanted to go for a lot of good reviews that said delightful, but after the thousandth that said delightful, you were done with the D word, I assume, right? No, it's always a good thing to hear. Um, yeah, that's that's a good D word. Yeah, if we, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Dirge, that would not be good for the tone mm-hmm. you were going for. Mm-hmm. Destructive, mm-hmm. desolatory. I can think of other D words mm-hmm. that wouldn't work so well. <laughs> Depressing. Depressing, <laughs> yeah. And well, okay, we won't, we, we can maybe get to that. But Karen, you came to this. I mean, this was your movie. You're the co-writer of it, right? Yes. Yeah, um, it was a, really an idea that came from Roshan, who's also my partner in creativity and in life. And um, it was uh, summer of 2020, I want to say maybe June of 2020. Um, and I was personally in a place where I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to have this job again, aka being on a set, uh, because it's hard to imagine now because there's been so many productions. But people are talking about social distancing. And I was like, how are we going to do that on a set? It just didn't seem like a real thing. And I was like, we're not essential workers. I don't see how this is coming back anytime soon. And I was sort of in that place. And Roshan was like, maybe we should just make our own thing and like, just make it really contained. And then we'll get to be creative this year, this like crazy year where like, we're all sort of trapped in there. And I sort of was like, this is never going to happen. And he just was like, let's just write a script and then we'll see, like, if we like the material, we'll maybe try to make it. And so it just really began with just writing a script because we had nothing else to do. Um, And we wrote it pretty quickly in about a week. And then um, we were happy with that. And we were like, is this good? Or was this a writing fever dream? Is this good or just fast? (laughs) Yeah, we were like, oh God, this and this. And I was like, is it really good? Or is it just that we were just happy we finished the script? So then we sent it out to a bunch of people. And the plan was originally to, you know, just find a group of people who are willing to like risk working in this time and like make something in a bubble almost. And um, uh, one of those people we reached out were the Duplass brothers and they basically were like, this is makeable. We're looking to make something in this time. And so then that led to before we knew it, like two months after we finished the script, we had wrapped the movie, which never (laughs) really happened. So it was a kind of a fever dream. I love those guys, and I think Jay was on the show, and he talked about really having a commitment to all diverse... He wants to mentor, they want to mentor a whole bunch of diverse people, but diverse Mm -hmm. tones and diverse stories, and this was it. And it was diverse without being... I mean, it's very much of the genre that it's in, but it also, in a lot of ways, subverts the genre. I don't want to give away the ending, but the romance... Well, what do you think, Geraldine? I mean, how did you play it? That these two people were falling in love or moment by moment, did you play it more like, hey, at this moment, I'm annoyed and all I need to know is not where it's going, but where I am right now? I don't know. I feel like it was pretty moment to moment, right? I think it, it in a way was like an extension of the the COVID time and the mantra of being locked down and just being like, let's just let's just enjoy this moment to moment and scene to scene. Let's just have fun with this and we weren't, we didn't, we never took it too seriously. We never like, these people have to fall madly in love in these, in this time. Like, I think the message of the story and and kind of the energy that we brought day to day on set as well was just like, let's just be in the moment and, and take it as it comes and just and try to enjoy it. 
So for people who haven't seen it, you two are the only characters. I think this is right. You're the only characters who are ever on screen except for when you talk to people over technology. Is that right? Yes, that is right. And that was purely a COVID thing of, um, you know, again, we shot this August of 2020. So uh, this was a great movie. This, in many ways, uh, uh, this entire movie is a very Duplass thing in the sense where their big thing is uh, creativity with limitations or within limitations. And so one of our big limitations was physically how many people could be present on the set. And so adding another actor became like losing a whole day of filming just with the testing costs. So uh, we tried to get creative and we had a bunch of actors like Aparna and Zenobia Shroff, all of them joined from New York, from their respective homes, which was really crazy and cool. But in an, in a way kind of, I think is so perfect because the movie was made in a time when we were all now, we're doing this interview on Zoom, like we were all, this was becoming a part of our reality. So it sort of in a way to us also felt like authentic to the time in which the movie was made and set. And you do want a movie to be, I was thinking about this, you want a movie to be universal. So there are clear, um, there are clear resonances of, say, When Harry Met Sally, which you can watch from the day it was made until a week ago, as I did with my kids, and it mm-hmm. plays really well. So you want it to be timeless, right? Bring Up Baby is timeless. But it's also not bad to have an actual artifact from this really, we hope, unique period and uh, if the universality of it is between the characters and the dialogue and the fun, then it transcends the particulars of, uh, of the milieu that it was set in, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's the hope. And, you know, um, uh, we, not that everything Roshan and I want to write and make what needs to be set in this time. Or specifically well, I hope so. Uh, Otherwise, <laughs> you'd be implying that there'd be, you know, ongoing pandemics yeah. that we'll never get out of. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I think, like... With this really, honestly, the movie really to us is a story about modern Indian relationships and about arranged marriages. So my parents have had an arranged marriage, so has Russian. So to us, like we had always heard of this Western POV of it, where it sounded very barbaric and archaic and I would always bump against it. And I grew up in India and I was like, this is very normal for us. And we just felt like a story like this had not been explored from every angle, but just from one angle. So we really wanted to give it our sort of POV. And it just so snapped in that we were like, well, if we set it in this time, we can explain why there's no other actors. Right. And it just sort of reverse engineered itself to sort of fit perfectly. But yes, to us, like there's a lot of elements in it that, you know, we've screened the movie at BFI in London and different places. And it's interesting the audience feels um, a cathartic feeling <laughs> to some of this stuff because it's an experience now. Not everyone's going to have an arranged marriage experience, but everyone has had some version of isolation, and um, unfortunately, and so the hope is that it can uh, be, yeah, like you said, a, a, a snapshot into life during this crazy time. Right. In your movie, I mean, you know, I'm trying to explain it to my audience and we've talked about it and the idea of arranged marriage comes up, but it is just the plot complication, let's say, right? It's not about, it's not a uh, referendum on the institution. It's these two kids meet cute, only it's not that cute. (laughs) Their parents really (laughs) had met a month before they were pushed together, which is the reality of at least how Indian arranged marriages work. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, It's partially why we also wanted to start the movie with real life couples, Harry Met Sally style, but this time not scripted because 
I like, you know, my parents are in that opening too. And I remember interviewing them for this movie and I had heard their story, but then even their generation to me felt like more barbaric and like, oh my God, you had no choice, did you? And my mom was like, no, he was cute. And we met at a hotel and I was like, sure. <laughs> and it was like so low key. And I'm like trying to make more of it. And she was like, no, we just did it. And I'm just like, this is so funny to me. But yes, that very much in our movie, it really becomes about to us also. It's about how in the time of COVID, how people reassess what they think they want and um, for Geraldine and my character, we go into this date and if COVID hadn't happened, we would never speak to each other again. And then the fact that, you know, she has a very set way of where she thinks her life is going. I have a very set way of mine. We're not meeting in the middle. And then we were forced to reconsider a lot of that and find out that actually, no way, we might have more of a connection than we initially thought you know, which is again, so like layered with what happened to I think a lot of us, uh, this movie for would not exist if COVID hadn't happened because we were just going around our lives, like doing our thing. And then suddenly when me and Roshan couldn't work anymore, we were like, I think we have to make our own thing because like we might have made something on our own eventually, but this really was not the plan ever. Like it was not a five-year plan pre-COVID or anything. So I think it also is really a lot about that too, uh, about changing what you think you wanted when everything, when the world is paused, it forces you to reconsider a lot of the stories you've been telling yourself. So for you as a film experience, Geraldine, we have your co-star is a co-writer and he's the partner of the director. So they have talked between themselves so much and and Karen has told us that he talked to his therapist about this a little bit. <laughs> what about, so my question is, were you as brought in, were you like the third partner in totally understanding where this was from or was it? an acting experience that had more lines than a usual acting experience. But, you know, in terms of ownership of the idea, did you feel a hundred percent part of that team or did you deal with it more like, uh, I got, I got, you know, 20 sides a day and that's what I have to deal with. Um, I think I felt like one of the kids on the project, you know, like, I feel like, um, I, because it was so all hands on deck, it really just was like, we're all, we're all in this. I definitely couldn't be lazy about it. Like (laughs) we were in it. It was was really on us. So um, I felt very involved in that way in terms of the idea and stuff, like they wrote it and it's their story. But um, in terms of on the day, I was definitely in it with them. How do you like playing characters who are clearly and meant to be and written that way of South Asian either descent or um, maybe they were born in India? Because I look at your career and I would bet that some of the roles you've taken were just written not to be that. And it doesn't mean that they were retroactively retrofitted, you know, credit to casting that they did some version of colorblind casting. But, you know, some roles are clearly have to be that and some roles are just written for anyone. And you, of course, are South Asian, so you are going to play a South Asian character. But what do you you like to have a certain percentage of characters you play where that is supposed to be their ethnicity, but then maybe you also like playing characters where it doesn't come up that much? I'm only really drawn to play characters who their ethnicity is part of their character and story um, when the person creating it is of that ethnicity. I think that's really important to me. I never want to be that like 
token character or feel like these ideas of what I am are being put on me. I think I just feel really comfortable and in fact excited to be a part of stuff that is made by actual South Asian people and we're talking about our own culture in the way that we want to. Yeah, from a place of uh, information and authenticity. Yes. And what about you and your casting, Corin? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, I started a little bit earlier than Geraldine, so I began in Hollywood. My first job was in 2009. So there was literally no Indian writers. <laughs> so anytime I was playing a part like that, it was completely from a white POV. Uh, and um, I have had at least prior, so far in my career, like a lot of the color blindness, which I love and is totally great. Uh, but I was really craving to be able to now be able to tell more sort of uh, Indian, like I'm Indian for a reason, not just because I'm in this thing stories. Um, and so this was a very conscious effort that we wanted to tell a story in this sort of vein. But now I am very excited, like Geraldine, because it feels like there's so many more options for people uh, that are Indian to actually write and tell these stories. And it's just going to be so much better. Um, and I actively try to seek that out now because it's something I have really not explored enough, I feel. Karen Sony and Geraldine Viswanathan are the stars of Seven Days. It is a comedy that has been described as delightful, as was this interview and meeting the both of you. Thank you both so very much. Oh my gosh, thank you for having us. Thank you. And now the spiel. The American right is more or less united against Vladimir Putin, though a couple of prominent outlets dissent. Tucker Carlson, the most important voice in conservatism and the most important figure on the right not named Trump, is using pro-Putin whataboutism in his na-na-na-na-na way. And it's pretty easy to understand. Carlson is a clever little monster who gets bored by spewing the same talking points that a Dan Bongino or Mark Levin could concoct in his sleep. Carlson wants to fillet the left at every opportunity. And if he can challenge himself by winding his argument through a pro-Putin lens, he's eager to take on the challenge. But the other most listened to conservative pundit advancing Russian talking points is, well, let's have Tucker introduce her. So Candace Owens is completely unafraid of anyone, so she's often accused of things. The New York Times, in its latest salvo, is accusing her of working for Vladimir Putin. A reporter just wrote to Candace Owens, quote, quote, we note you have advanced the idea that Ukraine was a corrupt country, which matched comments we've seen from Russian state media. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the comedy stylings of Candace Owens. Tucker thinks it's funny. Candace is serious, although also socially aware enough to pick up on the fact that this isn't a topic that has to be treated with the utmost care. I don't think he's reading the New York Times and doesn't realize how many times they pivot the narrative. And here's the thing. We, none of, nobody believes this Russian puppet stuff. I mean, it's just ridiculous. A black woman in the United States have never even been to Russia. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't think of a, a Russian food off the top of my head. I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous. I refuse to give it any air. Well, you did air it out for your 3 million Twitter followers and to Tucker's 3.5 million viewers as the most watched program on cable news. Also, borscht? Caviar? You can't think of caviar or borscht. 
You know what? I actually buy that part. I don't think she can even think of borscht because on this issue, Russia, I think Candace Owens is woefully ignorant. There is a sophistication. It's unconvincing. It's see-through. But it's at least faux-knowledgeable when it comes to the arguments made by Putin stooge Lara Logan, for instance. And Tucker certainly knows what to say and what not to say. He understands the issues. He's clearly playing a role that he gets. But Candace Owens doesn't know what she's talking about, right? It's the difference between lying and just spewing nonsense that you hope comes within the neighborhood of something that a viewer can latch onto. Owens knows that Putin is Biden's enemy and that Biden is her enemy. So there's, based on that, an available basket of some sort of talking points that if she plucked from carefully, wouldn't make her out to be quite a dupe or a dope. But she doesn't understand the issues. She's not particularly strategic in the arguments she makes or in the issues she's talking about. So she winds up saying things like this on her podcast two days ago. With, you know, Gorb- Gorbachev and James Baker and that guy's, the Russian guy's names that I can't say, Chernadze, um, you know, <laughs> saying. Okay, so I'm 50, she's 33. So to me, names like Edward Shevardnadze or Adnan Khashoggi or Panamanian strongman Manuel Noriega, they all roll off the tongue. But she obviously had no recognition of the name that she was trying to not recall, but just cite to show that she was some sort of expert. Edward Shevardnadze, USSR foreign minister under Gorbachev, first president of Georgia, very important 20th century figure. I don't think she knows what she's saying. And I also wonder how much Ben Shapiro knows what she's saying. Ben Shapiro is her boss at the Daily Wire, and Shapiro is a Putin critic. For everything else, he properly sees Putin's actions as inexcusable. Shapiro takes many shots at Biden as well, He just doesn't have to be so artless about it as to toe-touch into Russian propaganda. Owen says, of course I'm not an operative, of course I'm not on his payroll. No, but your talking points to him are still useful. And you know, of course, the Russians have a phrase for such people, useful idiots. I think Candace Owens is smart, by the way. I don't think she's stupid. I think she has verbal dexterity and has memorized a bunch of talking points that she draws on in most arguments. But in this one, she's extremely uninformed and not to her benefit. There's a reason why all the other conservative yackers know enough to blast Putin as they criticize Biden for weakness, always vaguely defined weakness. Is it more likely that Candace Owens saw an opening or a market opportunity to be the most Putin apologistic within the conservative firmament, save Tucker? Or is it more likely that she, without really knowing what she was doing, has made a misstep and can only pick fights with the New York Times or change the discussion to Hunter's laptop because she knows the idiocy she's evincing won't be long-term useful to her brand? And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is The Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the co-star, co-screenwriter, and Dolly Grip for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.